Been here, I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> Haven't had a drink since July 20th, 1965. And I, I was thinking while we were applauding one another, my dad used to love to go to A meetings with me. And one night a fellow picked up a, a birthday chip, anniversary chip, and uh, on the way home he said, why were they clapping? And I said, well, he'd been sober, you know, X number of years. And he was quiet for a minute. He said, you know, I've been sober 70 years. Ain't nobody clapping for me. <laughs> kind of puts things in perspective, doesn't it? You know? If anyone had told me when I was growing up that I would feel more at home, more comfortable in a room full of drunks than I would anyplace else on the face of the earth, I would have thought they were absolutely crazy. And yes, that, that's the truth. I'm not, I'm not content unless I'm surrounded by a bunch of misfits and screw-ups and miscreants all the time. You know? People like me, you know, who have lived life for a long time as wrongly as I could live it and finally been given the gift of sobriety. This breakfast is about gratitude, you know, and, and my gratitude, I think, I thought about it this week, is firmly based on the realization that, that God is doing for me what I never could have done for myself. And, you know, if my gratitude is just a feeling, it's an emotional thing, and it doesn't really amount to much. I don't know if you ever thought about that. But if the feeling of gratitude is converted into action, which is aimed at helping other people, it becomes a spiritual thing, and it's extremely valuable. I have to remember many times that Alcoholics Anonymous is a spiritual program. It's not based on thought. It's not based on feeling, you know? There's one place in the book where it says, but this is not all. It doesn't say there's more thinking and more thinking. <laughs> or feeling and more feeling. What it says is there's action and more action. And in any spiritual program, I believe that's what counts. Now, it's ironic that the reason you've been asked not to smoke this morning is because a guy standing up here with emphysema because he smoked three to four packs of Salem menthols for 35 years. I think that's kind of, I hope you don't hate me for that, though you smokers out there. You know, I'd be right with you if I could, but I just can't anymore. <laughs> I can't inhale. I was glad to see John coming here today. John doesn't know it. He's one of my favorite people. John resides, and I mean that literally, at the Madisonville group. That's one of the groups I've kind of adopted up here to go to. I like to sit beside John because John, to me, is the picture of serenity. He exudes it, you know. And y'all know serenity is the ability to stand in front of a fan with a smile on your face when the shit hits it. You know that. <laughs> and, uh, and, and John has, has evidently stood in front of many fans, I'll tell you. Because he's always got this, this knowing smile on his face, and I've got to where I sit beside him every time I go to a meeting, you know. And, and I can be troubled when I get there. And John has a saying, and us old-timers know it to be true. It may shock some of you people who have not been around for a long time. And it's this, the longer you're sober, the higher the price. The less you can get away with. Things I used to do, you know, without no compunction, I can't do anymore. I had a friend who used to say, I'd love to get on my high chair and just beat on it with a spoon and say, do it and do it now and do it my way. She said, but I can't do that anymore because I've been found out. <laughs> I have found me out. Ain't that a bitch when you do that? There are three or four or five or maybe more times a day I want to and sometimes do get in the high chair and beat it with a spoon. But I don't feel good about it, even if I get my way, probably most especially if I get my way. I didn't plan to be with you people many years ago, but I'm awfully grateful you were here when I got here because of the unity of the fellowship. You stuck, and I needed you. When I first got to you, as I'll tell you later, I needed you, but I wanted you on my terms. Always and ever my terms. I'm a living, breathing picture of pages 60 to 62. Okay? The actor who wants to run the whole show. Who wants to arrange the lights and the drama and the rest of the players in his own way, et cetera, et cetera. That's me. And I'm not talking about I was that way. I'm talking about I am that way. But the program gives me some principles to practice that take me away from that old self. 
that reduce that old self and expand the good self that's always been in me, although I would have denied that for many, many years. The good self has begun to come out, as it does in this program. Now, when I say I'm an alcoholic, I mean I'm the kind of person who always believe that anything that feels good should be done to excess. I know none of the rest of you are that way. I remember when I found out sex felt good. I was by myself, just like all of you were. <laughs> and in spite of warnings from my mother that I was going to go blind if I continued, I thought, well, I'll continue till I'm nearsighted. Moderation has never been in my vocabulary. That word, moderation. Everything I did, I did to extremes. And that fits the description of me, again, in the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. Okay? We alcoholics are extremists. I'm also a person that likes to do everything at one time and do it all perfectly. My wife is the expert at this. Eileen, the energizer bunny. <laughs> see that commercial on TV, I said, there you go, honey. <laughs> she just mumbles, and I'm that way, too. I get something on my mind, I can't get it off, so I'll do it. I may be doing something else, but i got to stop and do that. I cannot stand it until I get it done. Then I get mad because I've left what I was doing and forgot where I was. It's like being a ping-pong ball, you know, in motion all over the room. I got it, I got it, I got it, I got it. Any of y'all wake up in the morning, first words out of your mouth is, I got it. I'm a person who's always been a great starter and a poor finisher. Remember one time I was going to get healthy. I've done that many times. <laughs> and I had this little health club that I could go to free, you know. Now, if you're going to get healthy, you've got to do it in the proper uniform. So I went down to the sporting goods store. When I walked out, I had Nike written all over my ass. <laughs> And I was shown how to work the Nautilus equipment, which was interesting, but not too pleasant. <laughs> had a big swimming pool, you know, so I'd go in and work out a while on the Nautilus, and, and then I'd, I'd, I'd take a swim, and then I'd get in the, the hot tub. I like that part. <laughs> and I'd go from there to the sauna. And gradually, the Nautilus equipment was not so inviting, so I dropped it. And I just swam and got in the hot tub and went to the sauna. <laughs> <laughs> but I always put on my Nike outfit before <laughs> and took a walk around so nobody was know what I was doing, you know. And then it was just the hot tub and the sauna. And then it was the sauna. And even the sauna required too much effort. <laughs> I don't know where that Nike outfit is. <laughs> I spent a lot of money on that stuff, you know. And you wouldn't think that's a big problem, you know. It was a problem with me and sobriety. When I was hurting, when I was in pain, you know, I wanted help terribly. And I started feeling a little better, and I didn't want it quite so bad. And I started feeling a little better, and I didn't want it quite so bad. And eventually I'd go back and do the very same thing I was doing in the first place that got me in the pain I was in. I don't know if you're like that. I was. I've always wanted magical things to happen to me, effortless things. When I say a prayer, I want an answer now. On my terms. When I first came to you, I came with an attitude of, well, I'm here, fix me. I dare you. And then I'd walk away and say, hey, it doesn't work. Action, you know. It's a program of character change. I believe that, and that's my opinion. It's just designed to change me inside, to change my values, to change my beliefs, to change my perceptions, to change my attitudes, to totally, over time, change everything about me. And character change is not done by thinking. Some guy who didn't know anything one time said, which of you by taking thought can add one cubit to your stature? I heard a story one time. I thought prayer would do it. I prayed my ass off, man. You know, those kinds of prayers. I heard a story about that a rabbi and a priest went to a prize fight. And before the fight, one of the fighters got down on his knees in the corner and did this. Now, I'm not Catholic. I'm Southern Baptist, so I may not have done that right. <laughs> But he made that, made that motion, you know, and 
And the rabbi turned to the priest. He said, that's one of your boys, isn't it? He said, yeah. He said, tell me, what does this mean? He said, not a damn thing if he can't fight. <laughs> you know, character is only changed by action. You do it and you do it and you do it and you do it until it becomes a habit. And you do it and you do it and you do it and you do it until it becomes second nature to you to react in a different way. And when you react in a different way, your character has changed. My character defects were my automatic, unconscious reactions toward actions that were, came my way. The serenity prayer talks about it. No God grant me the serenity except the things I cannot change, which is what happens to me in this world. The courage to change the things I can, which is my reaction to what happens. And my reactions are nowhere near perfect, nor will they ever be. But by the grace of God in this program and a lot of practice, which I think is one of the most important principles in this program, maybe the most important, practice, I react differently than I used to. I'm not the same. And this has happened to me because I was willing finally to take directions. I finally surrendered. Now, you can talk to me about surrender until the cows come home. You can be very eloquent about it or not eloquent about it. But unless I am willing to take directions, I have not surrendered. There's no way. It's still my way until I've surrendered. And you know who gets the credit for my surrender? Alcohol. I can't even take credit for that. It beat me into a state of reasonableness, as the big book says, and beyond. I was run dumb, hurting, in pain, wanted to die, and I was shot as a human being. A total bankrupt entity and there's nothing else to do and it's usually when I do things you know when there's nothing else to do isn't it funny how we use things as a last resort and the things I've got to practice in this program are not really hard things don't drink go to meetings read the big book get a sponsor work the steps pray all these other things little simple things I never liked simple things I wanted to complicate things I can complicate a fart. <laughs> I'm sorry about the word, but y'all know what it is. I can take the smallest problem that ever happened to anybody and focus on it for 15 minutes, and it's totally insoluble. And you go to these old timers. I, not, I am one now. You know, I used to talk about them like a dog. I can't do that anymore. And what does he say? Don't drink and go to meetings. <laughs> Read the bit. But you don't understand. I've got this problem. Listen, boy. <laughs> it is so simple. But I love the line in the book. Simple but not easy. A price had to be paid. Listen to the price. It meant the destruction of self-centeredness. Wow. Hmm. A lot of people, I guess, have forgotten what an alcoholic really is. You know, I live in a body that won't handle alcohol. It never would. I don't know about you, but when I put alcohol into this body, this body sent me a clear and demanding message. Get some more of that stuff and get it right now. <laughs> Did you ever get that message? Wasn't verbal, didn't have to be, you know? And I would drink till I couldn't drink anymore. I was one of what Chuck C. used to call periodics. He said, they're pigs. I was a pig. I drank everything in sight till I was too sick to get it up and too sick to get it down, too sick to live and too sick to die, as he used to say, and then I'd quit for a while. My body still won't handle alcohol. I'm certain of that. It is always going to be that way. If I ever take another drink, I am sure that what Silkworth called the phenomenon of craving is going to develop in me. And I will drink just like I did before. Only I'm older now. And it'll kill me quicker. Enter the second part. I had an obsession with the effect of alcohol. I love the way alcohol made me feel. 
Absolutely loved it. It became the most valuable thing in my life. It rose to the top of my value system. It was the dominant value. I didn't know that, but it was. It came before everything. I thought about it when I was drinking it. I thought about it when I wasn't drinking it. I thought about it when I was trying to quit. I, th I thought about it all the time. I could not get it off my mind. This old idea kept going through my head. Someday, somehow, if I just handle it right, I'm going to be able to drink like everybody else. And that was a lie because I didn't want to drink like everybody else. I didn't, I didn't understand. I still don't. Social drinkers. Y'all understand social drinkers? <laughs> they, they go to a party, you know, and, and they take pretty good liquor and put it in a glass and start putting shit in it. <laughs> Pepsi-Cola, ginger ale, orange juice, milk. Come on. Then they start with the vegetables, you know. <laughs> Celery and carrots and onions, you know. And <laughs> squirt whipped cream on top of it, stick an umbrella in it with a straw through it, and suck on it. I never want to do that. And when the glass would get half empty, the host would come over and say, your glass is a little low, may I fill it? And they would say, oh no, I'm beginning to feel it. <laughs> Always wanted to scream, what the hell are you drinking it for? <laughs> I tell you what, y'all take all that shit you put in it, give me the booze, I know what it's for. You don't. I don't want to drink like other people. I wanted to be able to get that effect and only that effect. And I wasn't able to do that because of this body. So my mind kept telling me I could do what my body had already made clear it would not do. And what separates AA from all other approaches to alcoholism is the next thing that the book says about it. I'm spiritually sick too. Boy, I wrestled with that one for a long time. And I've come around to it in my own mind, my own way of thinking. I understand what it is, I think. Spirituality, more than anything else, means I am connected. I'm connected to my brothers and my sisters and my God. I was born that way. And somehow I've become disconnected, and pages 60 to 62 begin to tell me why. It's because I've tried to tap dance and con and scheme and use and manipulate to get things set up in my own way, and people got angry, and a wall came up between me and them. They didn't build it, I built it. And I got disconnected, isolated, separated. And the program is utterly simple. It recognizes that fact. And it says what you got to do is quit playing God. Quit trying to run the whole show. I believe somewhere in the book it says, first of all, we had to quit playing God. Okay? And then, identify the stones in the wall. Tell somebody about them to make sure you haven't missed anything. Be willing to have these stones removed so you can move on through that wall again. Ask God to remove the stones that are blocking you from your brothers and sisters and him. Step through the wall, make restitution, reconnect. The obsession disappears. You don't put alcohol in the body, and the body doesn't react with the phenomenon of craving. God, that is simplicity itself. It's too simple for most people. You know, I can imagine myself talking to an intellectual. You know, it's a program of the heart. It don't make sense sometimes. A lot of stuff we say doesn't make sense. It's paradox. And you're talking to a guy who's coming from the mind up here, and, and, and he says, you must be an awfully strong person to stay sober as long as you have. I said, no, sir, when I admitted my weakness, I started getting well. And he would say, that makes no sense. And I'd probably reply, no, it doesn't. He said, well, you must have fought awfully hard to win the victory over alcohol. I said, no, sir, I surrendered. And he says, that makes no sense. I said, I know it doesn't. <laughs> what do you do? I go to meetings. Aha, uh -huh, group therapy. No, sir, it is not group therapy. Let me repeat that. It is not group therapy. Just a bunch of drunks get together and talk, playing, can you top this? <laughs> Trying to lie and not get caught. He says, that makes no sense. I said, I know it doesn't. <laughs> what else do you do? I have a sponsor. Oh, a psychotherapist. No, sir, he's a plumber. <laughs> he says, that makes no sense. I said, no, it doesn't. What else do you do? Oh, got this program. Ah, the great theologians and psychotherapists got together and put you together. No, sir, it was put together by a bunch of drunks. <laughs> 
and the guy's losing it by now. <laughs> that makes no sense. And he says, who started this thing? <laughs> I said, a bankrupt stockbroker and a proctologist who had lost his ass. <laughs> And then that's where this glorious thing came from. You know, <laughs> I was a student of the Bible for a long time. And I discovered in there that God chooses some very strange people to get his message across. There was Moses. You know, Moses stuttered. Moses was slow of speech. I'd be slow of speech, too, if I was called up to a mountain. And I said, who called me up here? And the big voice said, I am. You know? And then a bush lit up. I believe after I peed my britches, I'd have started stuttering. I see. It tells Moses he wants him to go to Egypt and get his kids, and Moses says, I can't go. You ever notice God's got an answer to everything? He said, I'll send your brother to do the talking. You go in Egypt. <laughs> How about Ezekiel? You ever read Ezekiel? Read Ezekiel sometime. It's a study in DTs. <laughs> Man's out in the valley of bones. And them bones got up. <laughs> Started hooking together. Dancing. Looked up in the sky. There's wheels inside of wheels flying around there. I think to this day he was in DTs. <laughs> God chose him. And, and you know, <laughs> you can go right on. He chose a carpenter. You know? And the same thing was said about the carpenter that would be said about the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Akron? You're damn right. Don't do no good to argue with God. If he wants you to do something, you're going to do it. Remember Jonah? God said, go to Nineveh. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh, so I ain't going. Got on a boat, went the other way. Big storm came. <laughs> threw him overboard. Whale swallowed him. You remember the story, Tom? And where did he spit him up? In Nineveh. <laughs> <laughs> this I know about God. I don't know much about God. I try to relate to him and not explain him. But uh, if God wants your ass to go to Nineveh, you're going to Nineveh. <laughs> and so, yeah, we have strange roots, you know. The grammar in the big book is horrible, the intellectual would say. And I'd say, if you're a drunk, forget the grammar and read it, you know. Not an intellectual program, in my opinion. Totally, totally spiritual. Speaks in the language of the heart, which is not always understandable to the intellectual mind. Very seldom is. That's the reason our sponsors have to say, don't ask me why, just do it. Now, as far back in my life as I can remember, I was afraid. I had a lot to be afraid about. I was the ugliest boy you ever saw. My own mama told me she'd never seen an ugly baby until I was born. <laughs> she said, son, I can take you out of the house for six weeks. I don't want nobody to see you. You was ugly. Psychiatrist told me one time, he said, ooh, that must have been traumatic for you. I said, no, sir, it wasn't traumatic. I've seen my baby pictures. Mama was right. I was ugly. <laughs> Skinny little old boy, you know, my shoulder blades protruded, you know, little old toothpick legs. And I'd try to make my shoulder blades come in by bringing my shoulders around and my chest would disappear. <laughs> and I had freckles. I had freckles where people have never reported having freckles. I'd tell you where I got one now, but it embarrassed you. It embarrassed me too. I didn't like those freckles. You know, I always wanted to be a macho man. My mother had four big brothers. Boy, they were macho to the max, you know. 
Glenn and Cedric and Lloyd and, and my Uncle Durwood, who they called Dud, and he was a motorcycle cop back in the days when they wore riding breeches and leather spats up to their knees, you know, and he wore a harness across here and had a pearl handle 38 sitting high on his hip, and he, he smelled like gunpowder and shaving lotion, you know, and, and he squeaked when he walked. All that leather, you know, and, it, and that's macho. I wanted to be that way. You know what my macho uncles call me? Puddinghead. <laughs> I had this snow white hair on top of the freckles and skinny frame, you know, and, and it's hard to be macho when people call you Puddinghead. It's <laughs> not a macho name, you know. And I had a good mama. You know, my mama was a black belt Southern Baptist. You know what I mean by that? who got up at 4.30 every morning and gave God his directions for the day. <laughs> she called it praying, but I knew better, you know. And then she'd read X number of chapters in the Bible called Billy Graham Said So. And then she'd write letters, and she was a very, very disciplined woman, you know. And she expected perfection of me. Just perfection wasn't even enough, I didn't think, sometimes. And so, you know, I had a good case for that psychiatrist. It's my mama's fault. Any of y'all ever use your mama? My mother did never learn how to express affection openly with hugs and kisses and even words until after she got Alzheimer's in her 80s. And I ain't never been kissed and hugged so much in all my life. It was like she's playing catch-up. She didn't have the ability to do that. She loved me with all her heart, you know? And sometimes we put our parents down because they don't express this kind of love and caring. They seem withdrawn and cold, you know. Maybe, they, maybe they're not so constituted that they can do that. You know? Parents are taking a beating in today's world. I'm willing to cut mine some slack. Isn't that generous of me? My daddy was the finest man I ever knew. He was a gentle, kind, sweet, nice man. My kids used to say they called him Big Daddy, and they said, Big Daddy's the goodest man we've ever known. Now, my Uncle Dud, when I'd get behind him on that motorcycle he had on his police uniform and I'd put my arms around him, I wasn't afraid. Even then, I needed a higher power. You understand what I'm saying? He was my hero. My dad was my hero. We need heroes. We need heroes in this program, not idols. Be very careful. Don't take some poor guy because he makes a good talk and put him up on a pedestal and just wait for him to make a mistake so you can tear him to ribbons. Don't do that. That's an idol. People build idols so they can destroy him. I'm talking about heroes. I got many heroes in this program. I would not be sober without the heroes in this program. But the heroes are the guys that get out there and do it. Sometimes they succeed. Sometimes they fail. If they fail, they get up and they go and do it again and again and again and again. They never puff themselves up. Their gratitude has been converted to positive action. And maybe they can't put two good sentences together, but they'll go help a drunk anytime. Not a pretty, quote, normal <laughs> childhood. Yeah, I lived in a, a little tiny mill town down in North Carolina where everybody on the block was like family to me. I mean, every adult was my mom or my dad. I, I'd sleep at your house and I'd, I'd uh, eat at your house. If I misbehaved, I got punished at your house. And the punishment was usually a switching. They'd send you to get a switch, and then they'd use it on you, you know? And they'd tell you straight out, boy, if you do that, I'm excuse these words, I'm going to whoop your ass. That's what they told us. And when I did that, guess what happened? They whooped my ass. I, I, I didn't feel abused by that, you know? They told me not to do it. I did it. I earned it. They did it, you know? I had this lady next door. I really loved her. She was the best cook on the block, and... And she was the best eater on the block. Her name was Lena. I used to hug Lena. You know, I loved to hug her, you know. It, it was like having a breast in each ear. <laughs> and, and Lena would say, I love you, Puddin'. And I'd just go, mmm. <laughs> and it wasn't anything sexual about it. If Lena was here today, I'd go for them breasts, man. Just stick my head in, you know, mm, 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 you know. And, and I had some good playmates, you know, Bill Jr. and John Q., you know, and and I spent a lot of time riding down to the hog pen to slop the hogs. I don't know if you do that in Ohio. I go over to the creek and wade in that cool water and catch some crawdads, you know, and walk barefoot back home, having a good time. Go to the movie on Saturdays. Cost nine cents. Some of y'all can remember this. Popcorn was a nickel, fresh popped. Not $2.75 for some old stuff that's been in a sack for 30 days. <laughs> 
And I'd go see my heroes, the cowboys. Some of you are old enough, even Tony, but he won't admit it, <laughs> to remember Wild Bill Elliott wore two six guns. You youngins got to watch TBS at 4 o'clock on Sunday morning. You'll see Wild Bill. <laughs> Silver six guns turned backwards in the holsters, and he'd spin them things, and he'd shoot the guns out of your hands, you know? It's like cowboys were very polite. They didn't blow your guts all over the screen. They say, hold it out so I don't hit you. You know, shoot the guns out of the hand, spin them back in. It was wonderful. Put them back in there. And, and there was Sunset Carson, you know, and the Durango Kid. Danny, you don't know nothing about this. Danny, you don't know nothing about nothing. <laughs> and my favorite was a dude named Lash LaRue. Any of y'all remember Lash LaRue? <laughs> Lash used a bullwhip. You draw down on Lash, he'd whoop the gun out of your hand. I was watching old Lash one day, and he done run all the bad guys out of town, and he was sitting up there on the roof of the saloon, standing up there with his hands on his hips, looking all macho. I like to do it, but my legs was too skinny, you know? And he popped his whip, and his horse came. And he whistled, and he jumped in the saddle, and rode off in the sunset, popping that whip. And I cried. That's powerful. And I sat through that movie again and again and again, watching him. Well, you got to emulate your heroes. So I went home, got a piece of rope, went up on the garage. Boy next door had a pony named Beauty. I said, John Q, go saddle up Beauty. And he did. I said, now walk her past the garage. And he did. And I popped my whip and my rope and whistled and leapt into the saddle. And when I hit it, you could have heard me scream in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. <laughs> 30 minutes later, when I got my breath back, <clears throat> I began wondering about Lash LaRue. I still do. <laughs> Sometimes you women can't appreciate what it's like to have balls. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Quit waving, Dick. I don't want to see you wave today. Man can't say a word without a hand moving. Ride along with him in a car, he'll beat you to death. He'll just beat you to death. Yeah, talking about gratitude, I owe a huge debt of gratitude when I moved up here and I, I, I was having a rough time. And a couple of guys just got me out of the house, you know, I'll get into this maybe a little bit later, and got me to some meetings where I felt real comfortable and called me as often, you know, like every day. And, and, and without stuff like that, you know, it's rough. Being an old-timer, you can get just as lonely as a brand-new person can. You can get just as sick and tired as a brand-new person can. And what happens sometimes, because you're an old-timer, they think you know how to handle it, so they just pull away from you. Scares them. I've heard it said, and I believe it, sometimes the alcoholic is suffering the most is that old-timer in that meeting. Don't overlook him. Don't neglect him. He's living a dead time just like you are. For God's sake, you know, respect him. Honor him if you want to. But love him, too, just like you would a new drunk. Because some days they feel like one. I used to sit in a chinaberry tree beside the kitchen window. I can picture it now. And think about my mom and my dad and my sister and my friends and the neighborhood. I mean, it was like one big family. And, and I think how lucky I was. But I was ugly. I didn't like me. And something was missing. And I didn't know what it was. When I was 15 years old, I was in the King Cotton Hotel, Greensboro, North Carolina. On a high school singing trip, I was with some of my friends, uh, Egghead and Boots, Ducky. And they called a cab driver, and, and he came and handed them a bottle full of brown liquid, and they gave him $7 and a half. I remember that. It's like it was happening now. And Egghead was pretty wise. I uh, asked Egghead, what do we do with this stuff? He said, you drink a water glass of it as fast as you can. And then you drink a glass of water, and then you do it again. He said, you're going to feel good. Well, I followed directions. He's right. I felt good. Egghead was so brilliant, he died in Central Prison in North Carolina about seven or eight years ago. Hopeless alcoholic. Ducky died at age 32 of cirrhosis of the liver. Boots is still in what they call some places denial. I call it being dishonest about your drinking. Okay. These were the crowd I was with. I liked it so good when all my friends passed out on the floor, I called a bootlegger, I gave him seven and a half, and I got me a pint. I remember the name of it, Cream of Kentucky. 
awful stuff, but wonderful stuff. And I blacked out that first night. I was 50, 15 years old. But I loved the effect of that stuff. And I said, whatever it was that was missing in my life is not missing when I'm drinking this stuff. It's like this hole inside of me, which is so empty and so hurtful and, and filled with emptiness and meaninglessness, fills up when that stuff gets up there. And i got to have it. By the time I was 23, I'd had over 1,000 stitches taken in my face alone as a result of drinking. I've been through more windshields than most of y'all have sat behind. Okay, maybe not. I've seen some of y'all's faces too. <laughs> you know, and, and, and I was totally into alcoholism. I didn't know that. You know? And coming from a Baptist family, this is not exactly acceptable. You know, my mom and dad, mom's a hostess of Tabernacle Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. My dad on the, door to the board of deacons, teaching Sunday school every Sunday, singing in the choir. And I'm making the social pages. You know what I mean? Drunk, drunk driving, drunk and disorderly, resisting arrest, etc., etc., etc. Now, never remember being locked in jail one time. What I remember's coming to. Now, you come to in a southern jail, I don't know about Ohio, they come in with this tin plate with a weenie split down the middle and burned, and that's your sausage. Powdered eggs. Can't stand them. Been on the plate so long, you stick your fork in, the whole damn pile would come up. It's like eating an ice cream cone. Y'all don't even like grits up here. I love grits, but these grits were terrible. Nobody could eat them. They had hardened. It was like ready-mixed concrete. And the worst thing of all coming to in jail was not knowing why I was there this time. And then I was still telling myself, because I had this problem. I forgot in between every two drunks that I was a drunk. Totally forgot it. I could remember all the good stuff, forget all the bad stuff, and go right back and do it again. I love it when we sit around and talk about how much fun we had drinking. Have you ever really looked at that? You know, I discovered something. Balanced out with the fun was the horror, and there was no comparison. It is not fun to go to jail. It is not fun to go through windshield. It is not fun to go in through the front of that judge again who won't even look at you now. He just writes out whatever he's going to do to you. No, it wasn't fun. But that rush, which I think is a real spiritual experience. Alcohol is called spirits. That's what Carl Jung said. It's no accident that he gives us that kind of list. I don't, I lift, I don't think. Anyway, it did me. It's the most wonderful thing I ever had. It was the most valuable thing I ever had. Isn't it funny that when something like that is in the center of my value system, it will kill me because of its value? I had a lot of trouble. I went into service and all through my life, maybe it was my mother's influence, I was the best at everything I did. I never finished in second place. I made straight A's in school, never made below an A. That wasn't good enough for my mother, by the way. It was always the unspoken statement, you can do better than this. And I'm wondering, how can you do better than straight A's? You know? Maybe it was her influence, but everything I did, I did it better than anybody else. And if I couldn't, I'd sneak away so you wouldn't know I hadn't done it better than you. But most of the time, I could pull it off. I was blessed, slash, cursed with a very good mind. Partial photographic memory, you know. I graduated from college with a 3.94 average, majors in history and philosophy and minors in religion and Greek and English. 3.94 average, that's almost perfect, okay? And, and I, I was a soloist with the choir. I founded the college dance band. I had my own combo playing locally. I was among who's who among students at American universities and colleges my junior and senior year. I was the outstanding biblical student. I had so many scholarships when I graduated from that college, they owed me money. <laughs> That's the truth, and, and, and I was drunk 75% of the time. I didn't learn anything in college. I was a great test taker because of this memory of mine. I'd take my notes, I'd photograph them, I'd sit down with the test, and I'd match this photograph to that photograph, and zip. It was easy. That's the reason I say blessing slash curse. I always wanted to be something other than what I was. I never was content to be me, ever because I still didn't like me. And by now, without my knowing it, I hated me. If anybody else on earth had treated me as bad as I treated me, I'd have killed them. I showed up at Alcoholics Anonymous when I was around 23 years old. 
mind you, photographic memory, working from up here all the time. I'd always mastered everything very quickly with this mind of mine. And I came to Alcoholics Anonymous with that attitude. And this guy up front talking, you know, he was in control. I knew I'd be there very shortly. <laughs> There's a plaque over here with 12 steps, one over here with 12 traditions. And I said, all I got to do is memorize those, memorize what's in that blue book in front of that man. And they'll put me up front and I'll be in control. I figured I'd be president of Alcoholics Anonymous in six months. And Bill, don't tell me you didn't feel the same way, because you did. So I memorized. I can quote very large portions of the book to you this morning, but I don't have to anymore. And that's a freedom. I sometimes tell people, if you're ever in a meeting with me, don't misquote the big book. I have more, heard more crap that apparently comes out of the big book. <laughs> Haven't you? You say, where does it say that? Uh, 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 uh. I'm a living example that knowledge won't fix this deal. Next seven years, the longest I ever stayed dry was 89 days. And I knew it was 89 days because I marked every day off on the calendar. And I checked out the steps and the only ones that I, I wasn't, you know, really, really familiar with was the ones on meditation. So I went and found out about meditation. I found out the best meditators wore these orange bathrobes and shaved their heads and squatted and chanted, Om! <laughs> Couldn't find an orange bathrobe. So I used my old blue terry cloth drinking liquor robe. You know the kind I'm talking about? With a cigarette holder in it, stunk, ain't been washed, didn't do no good if you did. And I could get in the lotus position, but I couldn't get out. My legs had been broken too many times from drinking, see? And I'd sit there and chant and wait for God to fix it. On the 90th day, I rested. This close to the switch, couldn't reach it. I missed something, you see. I missed the first word in the first step. I missed the first word in the forward to the first edition of the big book. What that word is? We. I was going to do it, Tom. Like I always had. I didn't want anything to do with you. I didn't trust you. I didn't like you. It seemed like you always hurt me. And I was going to have to do this thing alone. This is a wee fellowship. That close to the switch, couldn't Boy, did I suffer then. Boy, did I really start putting myself down then. I met some hateful people. They was ugly. They were profane. They were stupid. And they were called old-timers. There's one old boy in my group <laughs> in Burlington, North Carolina, where I was in college. His name was Bill C. I called him Grumpy. I hated his guts. man would wait for me at meetings. He denied it, but I knew he was waiting for me. I come in the door. He'd point his finger at me and say, How you doing, boy? I didn't like that. I'd say, Fine. And he'd go to cussing and back me in the corner and tell me how I was doing like he had x-ray vision. That made me very uncomfortable. Tell me exactly how I was feeling. Have you had that happen to you? And he talked in circles. He was so dumb. Said the same thing all the time, you know. <laughs> Boy, you can't think your way into good living. You've got to live your way into good thinking. And I'd look at him and I'd say to myself, because I was scared to say it to him, shut up, you ugly old bastard. I hate you. <laughs> and he said, I'm studying theology and Hebrew, you know. And he's saying, how come you always run around looking for God? He ain't lost. <laughs> now, I'm an alcoholic. It's very important that everybody like me, because I don't like me. It's very important that everybody accept me, because I cannot. And I went out to please Grumpy, you know. Oh, Grumpy would sit up there. God bless him. And he'd rattle his chains, and he'd pull his nose. He had an ugly nose. And he'd run his hand through his hair and say the same thing at every discussion meeting. Never varied. And he did that for 37 years. And people say, oh, he's going to say the same thing. I said, you better watch him. He's been saying it for 37 years. And I find myself sometimes rattling my chains and pulling my nose and <laughs> running my hand through my hair, you know. The last time I saw Grumpy, these people never changed. He was dying of bone cancer. And I heard about it, and I went down to see him, and I went to his room, and as I came through the door, down came the finger. <laughs> And I'd been sober 16 years then. He points his finger at me and he says, and I quote, boy, you'll never make it. 
And guess who's one of my major heroes today? You got it. And it wasn't I didn't go to meetings. I went to meetings. I'd get drunk on the way home. I'd get drunk on the way there. That's an awful position that somebody was talking to me about the other night. I want to want to. But I'm like this old fellow in North Carolina who told me one time he understood what unmanageability meant. I said, what? He said, it's my truck. I said, what? He said, it's my truck. It won't go past the liquor store without turning in. I had a Volkswagen the same way. Some good people worked with me. Some good people gave up on it. You know, I always called for help when it was that. Test patterns out on TV, all the booze is gone. You say, shit. And I called Grumpy, and he boy, I could say a word. He said, boy, don't you ever call me again, drunk. He said, as a matter of fact, don't you. If you want to get sober, you know where we meet. And don't call me to come get you, because I won't. Because frankly, you can walk. And he said, I don't care if you ever get sober. That's not tough love, folks. Steel love. <laughs> you understand what I mean? His heart, oh, God, I cussed him, and I bless him today. I bless him. I went to work, and I was teaching in a college, and I was drinking, and I couldn't quit. And I knew I couldn't quit. You know, you reach, I'm going to do what I'm going to do, and, and that's it. And I don't like it, but I can't stop it. I've tried AA, you know, and it doesn't seem to be working for me. And I've tried, you know, psychiatric therapy, and I've tried going to religious homes for alcoholics, you know, where we learn how to pray, and... And, and stuff like that, and oh, that was a trip. Had a quartet down at this one place, called ourselves the Four Roses. That's the truth, you know, secretly. Sang gospel music, went around and raised money for this place, you know, because it was one of those faith homes, which meant you didn't eat four out of five days. One of the guys go get drunk, we sang as a trio, called it the Three Feathers. We never, you know, never varied. But something happened to me. Sometime around July, I, I, I had some horrible things happen to me. Yeah, I'd have horrible things happen to me. And I tell you, I drove under a tractor truck. I was unconscious for three weeks. I got deep vein thrombophlebitis in my leg. Everything was crushed. My face was ripped off again. Uh, I left the hospital weighing. I went home and I couldn't walk for the next eight months. But a kindly doctor gave me some medicine. He said it was brand new and totally non- <laughs> And so I drank coffee and took Percodan, you know, until I could get up on my crutches and mash the clutch on my Volkswagen, and as soon as I could, I went and got drunk. That's a real alcoholic. And I woke up this morning, or came to. I've said that many times. I think many of us say that many times. But I didn't recognize the flip side. I never had been able to see the flip side, but this morning it was clear, not intellectually, in the heart. And I can't quit. And I think for the first time, I understood what the first step meant. I can't drink and I can't quit. And I'm going to die. I made a profit out of Grumpy. You see, I was on five years probation. I had two years on the roads hanging over. I had no driver's license. was never supposed to drive again. And I walked back. And I sat in the back. I got there. I still didn't want anything to do with people. I was absolutely terrible. And I didn't think they wanted anything to do with me. Biggest thing. I was a loser. Total, absolute, complete loser, and I knew it. Even in AA, I was a loser. But I kept going. Grumpy later told me the only thing you ever did right in your entire life. I ran them completely out of white chips. <laughs> completely out. And every time I picked one up, I thought I had to make a speech. <laughs> Grumpy fixed that. I started to open my mouth. He said, shut up, boy, and sit down. You don't know nothing, don't say nothing. And I started kind of eavesdropping on people, you know. And the guys in the group found out I didn't have a license, and I walked again. I didn't have a license the first two years I was sober. I went to a meeting every night. Somebody would pull up in front of the house, and the horn would blow. It's what they call group sponsorship in the old days. I don't see as much of it today. I don't see us loading up the van and 10 or 12 of us going to a meeting and, and, and you know, together and, and making mass 12-step calls, you know, and things like that. We used to have a lot of fun doing that. It was serious business, but God was at fun. The group supported me, literally. And I kept watching, and I saw this man there that I, I liked the way he moved. You know what I mean? And it, it didn't hurt that, that he was a millionaire and had a Continental and smoked $25 cigars. That didn't hurt a bit. <clears throat> but beyond that and through that, he had some eyes that I was absolutely, there was a light in them. 
Remember when Abby called on Bill? You want to see a drunk get sober? The whole progress of sobriety goes, you know. I was looking at floors and ceilings and walls and shoe tops everywhere because if I looked at you, you might see me. And I sidled up to this man and I said, uh, my name's Tom, I'm an alcoholic, I don't want to die. Will you help me? Will you be my sponsor? Finger down and said, boy, I've heard about you. <laughs> they tell me you're not just a drunk, they tell me you're crazy. But I'll help you on one condition. I said, what's that? He said, we will do it my way. And I don't know but one way, son. It's in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. You want to do that? I said, yes, sir. <laughs> yes, sir. Not just yes. I always said yes, sir, to my sponsor. You know? And I didn't even hear myself saying it. Think back on that. I've never taken directions from anybody. I would not. I went to the stockade a lot when I was in the service because I would not take directions or follow them. And all of a sudden, I'm standing there saying, yes, sir. You ever notice how your sponsor seems so brilliant when you ask him to sponsor you? And then he goes absolutely dumb, <laughs> stupid, you know? He said, now the first thing I want you to do is I want you to come to meetings early, go around and shake everybody's hand. And I said, I don't want to come to meetings early. And I don't want to shake everybody's hand. I don't care how to do it. I just don't want to die. And why do I have to do that? He said, boy, you don't ask me why. I went, I hated it. I'd go to meeting early. Go around, look at the floor, shake everybody's hand, mumble it. <laughs> it was pitiful, man. My eye levels started coming up. Saw some ankles, some shins, <laughs> kneecaps, thighs. Saw some wonderful hips. Wish the hell I never had. And finally, I was looking them in the eye, and I was glad to see them, and they were glad to see me, and there's something electric about that when you can actually look at somebody and know that they care about you. You ain't going to let them yet, you know, because you don't feel worthy of it. Lord, it's nice. And sometimes it was like, God, I'm home. I, I ain't ever belonged anywhere. And now I belong. You couldn't run me away from here. My spiritual castle. My sponsor called people around the state who had worked with me and told them, old boy, stay in sober. They said, you're a damn lie. <laughs> Grumpy came down to see me getting my six-month chip. He got out of it, had pneumonia, drove to Charlotte. <laughs> he said, I want to see that. <laughs> well, I picked up a three-month chip. You thought I'd been sober 90 years. <laughs> Place went wild, man. I was never allowed to say anything. <laughs> if I started to say anything, the cigar would drop, you know, and it shut up. Never. <laughs> I was trained, side-saddled on 12-step work with my sponsor. I went on the first call with him, you know, and, and uh, we went in. This guy was really sick, and I said, Harry, what do I do and what do I say? He said, you don't know nothing. You don't say nothing. Sit down and shut up. <laughs> that kind of sponsorship, that's hateful, isn't it? Hurts your feelings, doesn't it? <laughs> in the days of treatment centers, we've come to mistake sponsors with counselors. They are not the same. I have a master's degree in counseling. If you're impressed by that, that's good. And some counselor will say to you, if they tell you to do something, my sponsor didn't give a happy shit how I felt. <laughs> he kept saying to me things like, effort, result, effort, result, effort, result. No matter how you feel, son, there's certain things you've got to do. If you're sad, you got to do them. If you're glad, you got to do them. If you're mad, you got to do them. You just got to do them because that's the substance of the program. And no one cared more about it than this man. No one. But he knew that irregardless, he did. And because his sponsor did. And because his sponsor did. Action, action, action. And I picked up a year chip. Man, I wrote a speech for a week. I tell you, I had a problem. I'm a highly verbal person now. When I first got here, I was rum dumb. I was really, I thank God for that. I couldn't read one line without forgetting it before I got one. He'd tell me, to, you know, Tom, read this paragraph. And I'd call him back. i said, say, I can't do it. I can only read two lines. And he said, well, read two lines and think about them then. He said, it's about time you quit demanding perfection of yourself and cut yourself some slack, boy. Read the two lines. Do what you can do. Don't demand more of yourself than you can deliver. But the ego was coming back, you know. So I had my little speech ready. And every time anybody said anything to me in the first year or so, I cried. I bawled. I couldn't get up and read. I couldn't read the, 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 the uh, preamble. I'd start crying. And I got up that night to make my speech. Boy, I had them in the palm of my hand. You know, I knew I did because I'd prepared this thing well. 
And I went to crying, and I couldn't say nothing. And the sponsor came up and put his arm around my shoulder. It's okay, son, I love you. I don't need any speeches here. Came to believe in God in a new way. That wreck I had up in West Virginia, you know, I was driving for a huge corporation and driving their car. And the truck driver, who was never touched, I went under his trailer, you know. Never touched, developed mental anguish and low back injuries. And sued the company. I'm on probation. I can't leave the state. I was subpoenaed. I'm wondering how I'm going to get to West Virginia to make amends to these people who cared for me so well in the hospital. And, and, and I said nothing to them when I left. And the policeman who didn't charge me with drunk driving and the doctor who sewed me back together and knew I was drunk and never put it on a chart because he thought I was going to die. The man that came to see me every day, the Episcopalian priest that came to see me every day. Every day. I'm a Baptist. I never said thank you or anything else and I knew I had to get back and make restitution. And I couldn't and I got subpoenaed. God works through the courts sometimes. <laughs> you know? I got subpoenaed, and I got a free trip to West Virginia. They wanted me to go to court and defend them. And I go in the attorney's office, and he said, here's what we want you to say when you get I said, just a minute. I said, I'm an alcoholic. And I said, I've been sober for about 18 months. And because it took a while to get up there, you know. God held back on that subpoena. And, 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 and I said, I don't even remember that wreck to this day. His mouth dropped open. You don't remember it. You must have had a concussion. I said, no, sir, it wasn't a concussion. <clears throat> I was in a drunk blackout. <laughs> he and his partner tried to convince me I'd had a concussion for the next two hours. I had a blackout. He said, if you go to court, you're going to tell the truth, aren't you? I said, yes, sir. He said, you know you can go to jail? I said, yes, sir, but I got to do it. He called the insurance company, hung up the phone, turned around, and I said, what did they say? He said, the insurance company wants to know how fast we can get your ass. <laughs> well, I couldn't get out of town, okay? Couldn't get out of town. It was over Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving was coming up. And I'm in this hotel at company expense, living, eating on company expense. And I called this Baptist minister who my wife and kid had stayed with because I was in the hospital in West Virginia and they were in another state. I'd never thanked them either. And I called him and I told him, the minute he heard my voice, it went silent. This was on a Thursday. He said, guess who we were praying for in prayer meeting? I knew. I said, yeah. And I told him what I wanted to do about making restitution. I thought that man would pee in his britches. He came in his car. He took me around to see the cop, to see the doctor, to see the man that cut me out of the car, to see the Episcopal priest, to see every person on my list. No way on God's earth would that ever have happened. But by the grace of God, I came to believe. A lot of people are lucky. They come to believe instantly, you know. I just had it on hold for a little while. <laughs> but this was actual impossibility becoming possibility along with the fact that it was impossible. I tell people and sometimes I hate to tell them this because you newcomers are so turned on. Life doesn't stop. The program doesn't change what happens to me. It doesn't change life at all. It's designed to change my character so I can react differently to life. I think I said that earlier. I don't always react well. Especially when life hits me. And the last 10 years of my life have been the worst 10 years from that point of view in my entire life of sobriety. It's been filled with, you know, like cancer, emphysema, high blood pressure, my mother getting Alzheimer's and dying, my sponsor getting Alzheimer's and dying, my ex-wife being killed. This went on and it kept going on and it kept going on and it kept going on. It seemed like all my resources were gone. I didn't have any more. And I'm praying God don't let me get hit again. And my daughter died. And you know something, folks? I don't even hate to admit this. I kind of gave up on life. I didn't give up on sobriety. I kept going to meetings. I kept sponsoring a bunch of guys. But I kind of went in my apartment and shut the door behind me. And I was scared to go out. God knows what's going to happen if I walk out that door. I was in limbo. The only time I was comfortable was sitting in an AA meeting. It's the only time. And I would like to say that, oh, I worked through that and it only took a couple of weeks. Shit, I'm still going through it. And I picked up 64 years of my life in North Carolina and moved it to Cincinnati. Moving's difficult under any circumstances. But when your roots have been somewhere that long, and I'm not crying about it, I'm telling you about it. Please understand that. And I came up here and I found a spot in front of the TV set in the front room, you know, and, and, and except for the grace of God, whose names begin with D, and I sometimes call them Fred and Frack, 
and, and I am not going to identify them here and puff up their ego, but God bless their hearts. They wouldn't let me stay in the house. I'm, I'm been praying, meditating, you know, and it's going to change. I know that from experience. It's going to change. I just wish it would change now. You understand what I'm saying? But I'm still grieving over my daughter. I still go to bed at night. My son, however, is sober seven years in the program. I don't know how long I've been talking. I'm going to shut up. Good side. By the grace of God, you know, gentleness is a principle that is often overlooked. That's what I admired about my father. And gentleness includes being loving and kind and polite and understanding and compassionate, you know. And I try to be those things with everybody I meet, not just at AA meetings. And I don't always pull it off, and I never will. But I try. My father, you know, this guy that I watch. He died with lung cancer. Lung cancer is horrible. And the day before he died, he, he suffered to the point where no amount of painkiller would kill him. And half the time he was out of his head. And the morning before he died, uh, he looked at me and he said, Son, am I going to die? And he gave me the greatest gift I've ever gotten. <laughs> you know, we had come real close during my... And he said, Tommy, I love you, man. I've ever known. Can I take credit for that? No. And my son, he's bigger than I am now. <clears throat> I made a mistake not long ago. I was sitting in a meeting and I, with him. And I talked about what a poor father I was during the first couple of years of my sobriety. After the meeting was over, my son, who was bigger than I, came over to me and said, you, outside. <laughs> I said, okay. And I went out there, and he got his finger up in my face. Don't you ever put yourself down as a father in front of me. I couldn't have chosen a better one. And then he introduced me to speak one night, Tony. He said, speaker is the finest man. He is my hero. He's my father. 